so we're kicking off a new series today on Philippians, which is probably my favorite book in the Bible, just because it is so full of joy. And it is so full of kind of this excitement about what's going on. And I'll explain, possibly not today, but maybe um, I'm speaking again at the end of the series on the end of Philippians. And I'll tell you a little bit about why Philippians is so important to me as a book when I do that. But what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is a deep dive into the book of Philippians. And so I thought it'd be helpful, as usual, to give you a bit of background to the book. So... If you want to know what happens and how the church came to be founded in Philippians, we actually do have a very detailed account. So in Acts chapter 16, we read all about how the church was planted. And it starts with Paul in a place called Troas. Now, that's a map of the Mediterranean. You should be able to see what is Turkey and then modern day Greece. And so Paul is on the coast in Turkey when he receives a vision in the night and a man Um, from Macedonia stands and begs him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after seeing the vision, he got ready, went to, and then they left to travel to Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel there. Now, just to make things slightly more confusing, Macedonia, as it exists in the world today, is actually formerly part of Yugoslavia, is now the Republic of North Macedonia, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. Which is why the people of Greece are particularly unhappy with the fact that the former Yugoslav Republic calls itself Macedonia. This Macedonia is named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, who, in typical way with all great conquerors and kings, decided to name an entire country after himself. So Macedon is part of Greece. So this actually is a pivotal moment in the history of the church because this is the moment that the gospel leaves Asia and crosses into Europe. So Macedonia is the first place in Europe to hear the good news about Jesus. And from there, it then spreads up through Greece, through the Balkans, and all over the Roman Empire. So this is a key moment for us sitting here in Bristol, because this is the start of the story of how Europe hears about Jesus. So Paul arrives in Philippi. And just to give you an idea of what happens when he lands in Macedonia and visits Philippi, what Paul used to do is he would find the local synagogue and begin to preach there about Jesus. But in Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue. So the next best place for the local Jewish people, if they didn't have, now I might get this wrong, 20 adult males, you couldn't start a synagogue. So he would find a place of water because typically the Jews liked to worship near water where they could cleanse themselves. So Paul goes looking for a source of water, thinking there might be some Jewish people there that he can preach to. And lo and behold, he stumbles across a trader in purple cloth called Lydia. And so he preaches the gospel to her. Her and her household come to faith and are baptized. And so over the weeks that follow, Paul is traveling backwards and forwards from the water, the place where the water is, where he's having these meetings back into the town. And whilst he's doing that, he starts to get accosted by a slave girl. Now, this slave girl is possessed by a demon. And for reasons that I do not fully understand, the demon spends all his time shouting, this man is here to tell you the good news about Jesus. So Paul gets a bit irritated by this. Now, this is the only example we have in the whole of Scripture of someone being healed of a demon due to irritation. It says Paul got annoyed, and so he casts the demon out of her. Now, this angers her owners who are using her to earn a fair bit of money. So they're irritated that Paul has robbed them of this source of income. 
So they drag him in front of the magistrates, come up with all sorts of preposterous charges, and have him severely beaten and thrown into prison. Then, in the middle of the night, there is an earthquake. And all the doors fly open and Paul's chains fall off. Does he escape? No, he doesn't. He stays there. Now, this, I must admit, I was puzzling about this. I just had this picture of this angel going, what are you doing? The doors are open. The chains are off. Why aren't you leaving? This is the plan. But lo and behold, he stays put. The jailer wakes up, sees all the open doors, pulls out his sword and thinks, better to fall on my sword than it is to be killed by the Roman authorities who will do something horrendous to me. But Paul says, no, it's all right. We're still here. Once again, much to the amazement of the angel. We're still here. We haven't gone anywhere. So the the jailer says, well, this is incredible. What must I do to be saved? Paul preaches to him. His entire house will come to faith. He binds up Paul's wounds. Then in my favorite bit of the story, the following morning, the magistrates turn up and Paul points out that he is a Roman citizen. They have arrested, imprisoned and beaten a Roman citizen with no charges and no trial. The magistrates now are very nervous because they know if he goes to the provincial governor, they will be stripped, beaten, and possibly executed. So they say, just look, forget about the charges, you just leave. Paul refuses to move until they escort him and apologize out of the city. And that is how the story goes. But it finishes with this line. After Paul and Silas come out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. That line there is the beginning of the church in Philippi, the brothers and sisters in Lydia's house. So the book of Philippians is written to the brothers and sisters that first started meeting in Lydia's house, but have now grown. There's now a church based there in Philippi. And so Paul writes to them, possibly his most personal, joyful letter. One writer puts it like this. Paul's letter to the Philippians overflows with effervescent joy, sparkling with the delight of family affection. It is encouraging and refreshing, reminding readers of the sheer magnificence of Jesus the Messiah and of their common joy in him. I love that idea. It's full of the delight of family affection. In contrast to some of Paul's other letters, where he's a little bit miffed with the church he's writing to, this one is one of the ones that's a really interesting insight for us because this is a church Paul thinks are doing well. So the hallmarks of the church in Philippi are really important to us to understand what it is that gave Paul such a cause for joy, and we'll explore that in a minute. But the other thing you need to bear in mind is Paul is writing this letter from prison. Now, I could bore you for the rest of this sermon on the subject of where he was in prison. There are a lot of pages written about where he was in, was he in Rome, was he in Ephesus, was he in Colossae? Irrelevant. Suffice to say, he is in prison. So let's leap in. Let's start, as Pete rightly pointed out, at the beginning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Because 
of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Then jumping down to verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So that's the wonderful opening to this letter to this church in Philippi that he had founded. Now, the letter is, as I said earlier, Paul's most joyful letter. And the letter is just shot through with joy. Joy or rejoice appears up to 15 times in the letter. He is clearly delighted with what he is hearing about this church. And as he says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. So here he is. He's in prison. Philippi have sent, as we'll see, some funds to support him because when you were in prison in the Roman world, you had to provide your own food. They'd sent him some money via a guy called Epaphroditus. Now, there's a Christian name you don't hear very often anymore. I think Epaphroditus Doherty would be a wonderful idea. <laughs> I'm currently pushing for Dave Doherty, but that sounds like a character from Dave Derry Girls. But, um, so he's full of joy at what he'd heard. Now, my family and I have just come back from Finland. Why were you in Finland, you ask? Thank you, Pete. I was in Finland because my nephew was getting married. That's my nephew, Tim, and his very beautiful bride, Julia. She is from Finland, as if the blonde hair wasn't enough of a clue. So anyway, we were at this wedding. Now, my nephew, Tim, has actually been to this church several times. He even played bass with Marion once, and he's had a bit of a troubled life. He's traveled all over Europe, and he's never really settled down to anything. And for the last few years, he's been living in Finland. Now, the family are obviously very worried about him. Now, even though he's been working on a Christian um, camp, he's been working as a volunteer. So obviously, his parents and his aunts and uncles, all of us have been a little bit like, when's he going to settle down, get a real job, stop mucking around with all this traveling, and actually, you know, knuckle down, stay in one place for a while, put down roots, do the right thing. According to who? (laughs) So anyway, he's chosen a different path. But at the wedding in Finland, in Finnish and Swiss weddings, basically you don't just have a very formal event with a lot of speeches. They have lots of games. They have loads of different people get to say a few words about the bride and groom. And as we sat there, it was astonishing to hear the story of what Tim had been doing in Finland. Because to us, he was mucking around. He was avoiding responsibility. He needed to crack on. But the reality was, time and time again, people talked about the way he had shared the love of Jesus with them, how he had prayed for them, how he had discipled them. I sat opposite possibly the most intense young man I've ever met in my life, called Alice. Bless him. Alice, if you're watching this. Um, And he, I said to him, you know, how do you know Tim? He said, he led me to Jesus. He's my father in the Lord. I love him to bits. And so we just heard time and time again throughout that wedding, testimony after testimony of what Tim had been doing and the difference he had made in people's lives. And so 
for us and for me as a pastor, hearing about Tim's partnership in the gospel, that where he was, he was doing that wonderful work of the gospel was really encouraging to me. And it did, obviously, for all the parents in the room, kind of make us think, yeah, all right, he was doing something worthwhile with the last couple of years. <laughs> Sorry, Lord. Um, so this idea of partnership in the... So Paul is in prison, and he's hearing these stories of what's going on back in Philippi, and it's filling him with joy because they are his partners in the gospel. They're continuing in this partnership. Now, in the Bible, partnership sounds like something to do with, you know, sometimes we might think of it as fellowship or some sort of Christian word, but actually it's a, it's a commercial term used in Greece to reply, um, to talk about someone who's in partnership with you in business. So effectively for Paul, he's saying, we're in the gospel business and you guys, based in Philippi, are my partners. You are doing the same sort of stuff as I'm doing. We have a similar vision and we're involved in this similar work. And in one of the ways that they so it's easy sometimes when we think about the partnership in the gospel in Philippians to think they're in partnership because he's being supplied by them. They are providing money to him via Epaphroditus who traveled carrying this money across the world to give it to him. That's how they're partners. But I think that misses the point. It becomes clear as you read the rest of Paul's letter when he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So for Paul, he's full of joy because where they are, they are doing what he is doing. They are striving for the faith of the gospel. They are telling people about Jesus and they're seeing the church grow. And that gives him lots of joy. So that's the partnership. But I guess the question is, what do we understand by gospel? Now, gospel is a word that you will all be familiar with. It's talked a lot about. We hear the phrase used many, many times in the church. The Greek word um, euangelion means uh, glad tidings or good news. And typically, the gospel would be something an imperial messenger would carry from town to town about the emperor's victories. So a guy would turn up in your town with the good news that the savior of the world had brought peace the issue is he's talking about whichever roman emperor was in power at the time so paul turns up in philippi with the good news that the savior of the world had come to bring peace but this is a very different savior and the way he brings peace is very different and so these people in philippi hear the good news about Jesus, that Jesus is the one who brings peace. Jesus is the one who has died and risen again that we might be reconciled to God. That is the good news. But the question I have is, have we forgotten that it is good news? That it is good news to know Jesus? That ultimately, it's the best news? That actually, it's good news for everyone we meet. It's good news for everyone we know. It is good news. Just stop a moment and think, in your life, is knowing Jesus good news? Yeah? Good news for you. Good news about what he can do. Good news about how he changes us. Good news about our future in his hands. Good news about the fact that we've been reconciled to God. He is good news. Well, the Roman soldiers that were keeping Paul in prison were beginning to understand that this is good news. 
It talks about the whole palace guard have heard about Jesus and the reason for his imprisonment. The reason I chose this picture is sometimes we tend to think Roman soldiers, but these guys are brutal killers. They are the most efficient killing machine the world had ever seen. They are hard as nails. Philippi was full of Roman veterans that fought alongside Octavian to kill the people that had rebelled against Julius Caesar. They are hard-nosed, practical, down-to-earth killers, for want of a better phrase. But somehow, Paul being in prison and talking about Jesus was beginning to change the way they thought and what they thought about the world. Because Jesus is good news. So when we think about the houses surrounding us right now, do we believe that Jesus is good news for the people in Ringwood, for the people in Lydney, for the people in Henleys, in Westbury? Do we believe that what we're talking about now, this Jesus, is good news for them? Is he good news for your colleagues, your friends, your family members? Do we really believe that he's good news? Have we forgotten just how good that news is? And so I've been feeling really challenged reading this about the partnership in the gospel. What would it mean for Paul to be full of joy about community church? If he wrote Paul's letter to the community church at Greenway, would it be full of joy? Full of familial affection? Would it be effervescent, sparkling with joy? Or would he be saying, oh guys, what do you reckon? Well, I think when Paul, if he was writing to me, he'd be saying, Dave, have you forgotten the good news? Have you forgotten how good Jesus is? Actually, post-COVID, post-lockdowns, all that's gone on before, you've been up, down, you've been not left and right, up and down. But now, as we stand here at the start of what for us as church is a new term, Dave, remember, Jesus is good news, not just for you, but for everyone. So take those opportunities when they come. Open your mouth and say the words. Don't just think them and regret them afterwards. But here's the thing. When we say Jesus is good news, we don't just mean that come and get, join, come, and come to Jesus and everything will be fine. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been involved in youth work, youth leaders are brilliant at coming up with some of the least theologically correct descriptions of everything. My personal favorite was a youth leader I was with describing the Holy Spirit as the force in Star Wars. <laughs> Just bad on so many. I could, I could write an essay on why that's bad. But the point is, some people seem to think if you come to faith, if you come to Jesus, everything's going to be all right. That actually, Jesus in your life is like the, this force field that you have. So if you've seen the latest Obi-Wan Kenobi on Disney, it's very good. There's a bit where he's literally making rocks fly through the air and people are throwing things at him and he's just bouncing them off. And wouldn't it be lovely if coming to Jesus was like that for us? That we could go through life with this source of power that just enables us to deflect everything. Nothing would get to us. Life would be so much simpler, so much easier. No ups and downs, no problems. What a misunderstanding of the gospel is that? Because ultimately, what we need to remember is, where was Paul writing this letter from? He was in prison. Now, he is a traveling evangelist. Okay? Get the first part of that sentence. Traveling. Paul lived 
for moving from A to B talking about Jesus. Can you imagine for a type A personality like Paul what being in chains would be like? Being locked up, feeling every day slipping past in prison an opportunity missed to preach about Jesus on the streets of Greece, on the streets of Italy. It must have driven him crazy. I imagine being with him was like being with my wife in a car, in a car traffic jam. The frustration, the constant attempts to speed things up, changing lane, just trying anything than just sitting there in the jam. And for those of you, I'm sorry if this is a traumatic picture for anybody here who tried to go to France on holidays this year via Calais. But the reality is you have this beautiful holiday ahead of you. You're excited about what's going to happen and you're stuck. So this frustration Paul must have felt, how did he deal with it? Because here's the question. How do we respond when life comes off the rails? We feel life is supposed to look like this. And then along comes, in his case, a Roman jail, which is hopefully not waiting anybody in this room. But the reality is something may well come along and you suddenly find yourself heading in a completely different direction. Life looks totally different to what you anticipated. You've come off the rails. Plan A, gone. So Paul writes this. Now, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it became clear through the whole palace garden to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So here's Paul in prison. Instead of being frustrated, he sees it as an opportunity. His life has gone off the rails. The plan has not gone the way he intended. He is not where he thought he was going to be. It didn't look like what he thought it would look like. His opportunities are vastly limited compared to what he thought he would have. But does he just sit and complain? Does he kind of turn in on himself and say, well, there's no point. I give up. No. He says, this is where I am. This is the place I will find opportunities. There's a, a wonderful quote by the philosopher Phil Dunphy. And he says, when life gives you lemonade, make lemons. And the point of that is, whatever life throws at you, that's what you've got to work with. Wherever you find yourself, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, that's the raw material God has given you. And here's the thing. There is no plan B. There only is plan A. In other words, for Paul, the plan was to share the gospel. The plan was not based on where. It was based on him and what God had called him to do. So wherever he found himself, in whatever circumstances he found himself, he still had plan A, share the gospel. So the challenge for us is sometimes I come across people who are a little bit well, I was going to do this. My life, you know, the plan was this. Something else has happened. Now I find myself here and I've let go of all of that. Rather than, this is where I am. This is what's around me. This is who's around me. The mission stays the same. Wherever you are, whatever's going on, whatever life throws at you, the mission stays the same. We are partners in the gospel. 
So whatever's going on, remember plan A. Plan A is the gospel. And trying to find ways to use the opportunities, whatever limited they may be, to share that with the people we encounter. And also to live life well in that moment. Because I think if Paul had been preaching the gospel, but been bitter, cynical, angry, frustrated, fed up, no one wants that gospel. Paul's life must have lived up to the message he was sharing. So we face two choices. When we are in those situations where life has gone off the rails, how do we respond? Not only do we keep on mission, we also need to find some way to keep going back to God to say, Lord, don't let me get bitter. Keep my heart soft. Fill me with your peace and your joy and your grace that I don't become cynical or angry. Help me to let my life shine with the light of the gospel just as much as I might share about the light of the gospel. But the good news is it's not all about us. Paul goes on to say, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I am an Olympic grade starter. I love starting things. I hate continuing things. I don't particularly like finishing things. I could show you the pile of books on my desk that I have currently read one or two chapters of. It is a very tall pile. I am very good at starting. When I went to university, you have the opportunity to join lots of societies. I took up fencing because it was ridiculous. It was truly hilarious. The first day we turned up there, the guy gave us the kit and literally said, have a go. So, of course, I used the thing like a broadsword and tried to beat my opponent into submission with repeated blows to their head. There was no finesse, no skill. I did it for four weeks, and then I got bored, and I stopped, and I gave it up. And I think some people go into the Christian life thinking, well, it's all very exciting at the moment, but I'm sure I'm going to screw it up. I'm sure if something goes wrong... I'll jack it all in. That actually, if life goes off the rail, I can't be convinced that I'll be okay. I remember being a young Christian and hearing stories of the martyrs and quietly praying, Lord, don't ask me to do that. I'm not sure I could. I may just bottle it. I don't know if I'm made of that kind of stuff. And so that idea that we might just throw in the towel, that actually when the going gets tough, the tough get going in the opposite direction. Whether that is us, I don't know. But certainly for me, I love starting things, but I'm always suspicious that I won't see it through. Now, I don't know if you've driven down the portway and you've seen the people climbing on the rocks. If you've ever done rock climbing, it is a truly wonderful thing. It is exhausting, but it is fantastic. But the first time I ever went rock climbing, what I discovered was I loved it, but only when I got to the top did I realize that it was possibly easier than it would have been otherwise because there was a guy partly pulling me up with a rope. Because, of course, they're worried you're going to drop. So that you're attached to a rope, and what you don't see is a guy at the top who's taken the rope, put it around a tree, and it's kind of slowly helping you up. So when I thought I was being really strong, pulling myself up with one arm, actually, I was being partly lifted. And that, I think, is a beautiful analogy of following Jesus. 
that ultimately you may feel you're on the rock face struggling to make progress and it's all your effort. But what you possibly don't realize, and one day when you look back you might see, is that God has been pulling you up all the way. That ultimately he doesn't pull you so you don't have to do anything, but the rope is there. And there are times when you may well slip and you might fall back 10 feet, 15 feet, but you're not going to hit the ground. There's not going to be a splat because he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. You may not feel the rope when times get tough, but the scriptures are clear. The rope is there. Because sometimes I think we think, I must, I put my hand up. The footprints in the sand thing I hate. Because that implies Jesus is walking along next to you and you're just meandering through life. Whereas I think a better picture is that Jesus is reaching from eternity and pulling us towards him. We are a people of eternity. So get that sense in your mind that actually Jesus is reaching from, as Pete put it earlier, the heavenlies, reaching from eternity into our lives, and he is drawing us towards himself. And when you think of it in those terms, it's not about your effort. It's not about the ups and downs. It's not about the setbacks, the sidesteps, the blind alleys, the U-turns, and all the other stuff that life comprises. That pull is constant, and that pull is steady. And that pull only ends when we see him face to face. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are good news. Good news for me, good news for everyone in this room, but also good news for everyone on this planet. And Lord, I just pray for each one of us today, would you rekindle some of that passion, that zeal, that joy of knowing you, that that passion for the good news. And Lord, would you this week help us to be willing to take that step of sharing it with someone, that we would take the opportunities that come our way. We wouldn't duck or dodge them, but that, Lord, we would go out confident that what we're talking about is actually of vital importance for everyone. It's not partly true. It's not nice to have. It is the greatest news the world has ever heard. That God in Jesus stepped into the world. He died for us. He raised from the dead. And he will lift us up one day so we can spend eternity with him. We thank and praise you, Lord, that you do not leave us here struggling as orphans. But that you are pulling us towards yourself. That from eternity you draw us towards that glorious day. Help us to live with some of that confidence that the church in Philippi had experienced, some of that freedom from fear that the church experienced, that, Lord, we might live confident lives full of you. Amen.